anybody love you, Pastor, today. Amen. Very honored that he would trust me. I give him honor today. I'm very thankful for my pastor. Love that man. That's all I'm going to say so I can keep it together. If you would, turn with me if you have your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to start in verse number 8. Second Kings 2, verse number 8. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped together, smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee, before I be taken away from thee. And Elijah said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire, and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, the horsemen thereof. And he saw them no more. And he took hold on his own clothes, and he rent them in two pieces. And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, This is the Lord God. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is the Lord God of Elijah? When he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elijah went over. And when the sons of the prophets, which word of you at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. I'd like to talk for a few moments about the first calling, the first call. If you would, lay your Bibles down and together let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for the Word of God. We are so thankful that you would allow us into your glory again. God, I pray that your hand would rest upon every heart, every mind, that your anointing would flow from the head to the feet of this body. And your anointed word would flow through anointed lips and it would rest upon anointed hearts. And that seed of truth would be planted so deep in our spirit, into our foundation, that it would bring forth fruit into our life. God, our hope is in you and your word today. I pray that you confirm your word with signs following today. Thank you for the word of God. You can be seated. This uh, account of Elisha and Elijah, this is the epitome, if you will, of uh, being called to ministry. If you um, have ever thought, you know, I, I feel called to preach or I feel called to do anything for the kingdom of God, this would be the epitome of God asking you to do something. You have uh, the prophet Elijah and then Elisha following him. And all of a sudden, the man of God says, what would you like? And he just gets to ask God for anything he wants. 
And then you see a big whirlwind come, and there's a, there's a pillar of fire that falls right there where they are. You've got chariots that come from heaven. They swoop up the man of God, and his mantle just falls where you are, and you pick it up and, and go about your way. That is uh, the epitome or the, the highest thing that I guess we could probably imagine if God ever asked us to do something. I was not afforded something so great when God called me to do anything for him. There's never been a pillar of fire. I've never seen any chariots from heaven. I don't even think I've seen a real chariot. Uh, so that's never happened for me. But this is a powerful uh, experience that Elisha got to have. And from this, we take in Pentecost, mostly we, uh, we take this uh, ministry of mantles and we run with it. And mantles is, is uh, something that, that everybody's looking for and wanting. They want the mantle of this man or this, this woman. Um, the mantle, what it was when it fell... In those times, it was just an article of clothing um, that, would, that the prophet would wear, and, and it would be around his neck. And, and all that it did, uh, did nothing for the prophet. It was a sign to everyone else that this is a man of God. Uh, th that mantle just meant to everyone else that this is the prophet. And so that's why he wore it, to signify his office. It was given to him um, to signify who he was. And so there really wasn't anything uh, far from the mantle that Elisha received. So we, we look at uh, what's, what's going on here. The man of God goes, his pastor leaves, and he turns and goes to Jordan. He goes back to Jordan. What, we, we read that when they came, they crossed Jordan. Elijah just smote the waters, and the waters just parted. And that's pretty powerful. And all that Elijah, Elisha saw was the man of God took his mantle, hit the water, water parted. It's like, that's pretty cool. Okay, so the waters go back once they cross the Jordan. So he goes back to the Jordan. It's flowing again. And so now he's on the wrong side of Jordan having to get over. So he takes that same mantle, wraps it in his hand, hits the water, and nothing happens. And so he, I think in modern Pentecost, me for sure, we would have looked at that mantle and we'd have said, what's wrong with the mantle of Elijah? What, what's wrong with the ministry of Elijah? Why, why didn't it part the waters? What's wrong with the anointing of Elijah? Where are the miracles of Elijah? But somehow, Elisha had a revelation that I wouldn't have had. He didn't ask for the, the mantle. He wasn't asking what was wrong with it. He understood that because these waters weren't parted, he said, I'll read it. Um, in verse 14, he didn't ask for the mantle or what was wrong with it. He said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Elisha had a revelation that the only thing that's going to part these waters is the God of Elijah. This mantle's not going to do it. His pulpit won't do it. His position won't do it. His ministry's not going to do it. What I need is to know the God of Elijah. That's the only way I'm going to get from this side of Jordan to the other. As I've got to have the God of Elijah. And we, we learn uh, he's standing now on the other side of Jordan. The, the water's parted, and he goes to the other side. Now he's got the ministry. He's got the mantle. He's got the recognition from the people. He's got everything that he never even asked for because he never asked for that mantle. It just fell, and he grabbed it. When he was asked, uh, what is it that you want? He said, I want a double portion of your spirit. 
He didn't ask for a double portion of your anointing. I don't, I don't want to do twice as many miracles as you do. I'm not asking for to be twice as powerful as you are. Well, all that I'm after is twice of your spirit. Whatever it is about you that caused God to put his hand upon you. Whatever it is in your spirit that caused God uh, to have favor upon you, to look down from heaven and look at you and say, I can trust that man to be the prophet over my people. Whatever it is about you that caused God to look down from his throne and say, that is a man that I can put my anointing in and trust that he will do the will of God. Whatever that was about you, I want twice that. I want a double portion of your spirit. And so even though that's what he asked for, he still stands on the other side of Jordan with twice the spirit, twice the miracles, the, the mantle, the ministry, all the things that he never asked for that I would have asked for. He stands with those things, never requesting them. So my question is, how did he get there? We'll go to 1 Kings chapter 19. How did Elijah get to the other side of Jordan with all of those things he never asked for? And where did he get that revelation that he needed the God to cross over? Because he didn't, he didn't see Elisha say, God, I need you to part these waters. All the man of God did was hit the water with the mantle. And now Elijah somehow gets the revelation that it was the God and not the mantle. So where did he get that revelation? Chapter 19, verse 19, so he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with the twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelve. And Elisha passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. Next verse. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me pray, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and mother, and I will follow thee. And he said unto him, go back again, for what have I done unto thee? And he returned back from him, took the yoke of oxen, and slew them, and bawled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, gave it unto the people, and they did eat. And he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. This was, we reverse time here, we're now in 1 Kings. This is, of course, before Jordan, before the chariot. This was Elijah's second calling. This is the second time that he received a calling. This is when the man of God laid the mantle upon his shoulders the first time, basically saying, you're going to be the next prophet. You're going to be the man that fills my shoes. That was his second calling. The first calling that Elisha ever received is not, in, in fact, in, found in Scripture. This is the first time, uh, this, really the second time we've ever heard of a man called Elisha. But what we know is right before this happened that God told Elijah, after he had pretty much given up, he said, I've already found the next man. I found the next prophet of Israel. You go and find Elisha and you put your mantle upon him. For I know that man and my anointing is going to be on him. I'm going to anoint him to be the next prophet. So what that tells me, that conversation that God held had with Elijah, the first prophet, tells me that there was a relationship that was already there between Elisha and God. There was already a circumstance where God trusted Elisha. There was already a place or places that Elisha had been with God that allowed God to trust him with that anointing and with that ministry. That relationship was Elijah's first call. That was the first thing God ever asked of him. It was a relationship with him. 
Before God ever placed the mantle upon Elisha, before he ever said you're going to be the next prophet, he said, will you follow me? Will you live for me? Will you desire a relationship with me so that I can see whether or not I can trust you with that kind of anointing? So we look at the story of David. David was, uh, many scholars believe, an illegitimate child. He, uh, his father, his brothers, they, they discredited him. He was just in the field keeping the sheep. He had no real meaning to his family. He was just that man, that, that shepherd, uh, just so happened to be one of the brothers. And uh, so we learned that he didn't really have much contact with people. Nobody knew who David was. But Samuel, uh, after Saul's ministry, or Saul's kingdom comes to an end, God tells Samuel, I found me another man. And I want you to go to the house of Jesse. Because I found a man in the house of Jesse that is after mine own heart. What he learned... What Samuel learned about David before he ever met him is David's got a relationship with God. I don't know who that man is, but he's already had a relationship with God. And not only is it just some casual relationship, but he is a man after God's own heart. So we've learned in Scripture that David was, a, was afforded opportunities to learn about God. He was alone in that shepherd's field, just him and the sheep, and God sent him a bear. To take his father's lambs. And David miraculously slew the bear. God sent a lion. And David miraculously slew the lion. There were trials. There were hard places. There were dry places in David's life. Before anybody ever knew who David was. That David proved himself to be a man of God. He proved himself that I am a man after God's own heart. Before anybody ever knew him. Before there was ever oil on his head, before there was ever a throne for him to sit on, there was a relationship that David had built with the Lord that allowed the Lord to trust him and say, that is a man that I can trust to be the king over my people. That is a man after my own heart that I can place on the throne and know that he's not going to go after his own way. He's not going to let his flesh sit on the throne. He's not going to do what pleases him. That's a man, David, that I know I can trust. There was a relationship that was established in David before anybody ever knew who David was. God's attention was given to these men, these men, because they answered the first calling. They answered the call of relationship and intimacy first. And then we see that ministry come. Then we get the kingship and the, uh, the office of the prophet. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 7. Philippians 3 verse 7. This is Paul. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Here it is, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead... Not as though I had already attained, either were already made perfect, but I follow after that, my, that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended 
of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. Paul said, what's the highest calling? Verse 10. What's that high calling of God? That I may know him. Paul said, the great apostle said, the highest calling you're ever going to receive is that calling to know him. The best thing that we're ever going to get is to know him. The highest place we'll ever get in the spirit is knowing him. The highest calling you'll ever receive in all of your ministry is to know him. The greatest apostle, arguably in scripture, the one who is apostling of nations, the man of God that walked with God, that's responsible for two-thirds of the New Testament. He has the greatest ministry that we know of to this day. And yet he says the highest calling is not to be the apostle. The highest calling is not to be the prophet. The highest calling is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable I'm to his death. The highest calling that I can ever receive in my relationship with God, in my walk on this earth, is to know Jesus. The best thing I could ever do while I'm still on this planet is know Jesus. Not just to say that Jesus is the Lord or God is God's on the throne, but to know him. There, there's something significant about know that that word knowing him it means intimacy. It's it's it refers to marriage in the in, in the end time on judgment day when God says uh, depart from me you workers of iniquity for I never knew you. That's not possible for an omnipotent God for an omniscient God. He knows everything. He knows everyone. He counted the hairs on your head. He knows everything there is to know about you. So how could he say I've never known you? That word know is not physical knowledge or just I know every attribute about you. That word know means I've never had relationship with you. I've never had intimacy with you. You never allowed me into your heart and allowed me to speak to you and allow me to convict you and allow me to take you and allow me to bless you. Allow me to give you hope and the joy and the strength. You never had relationship with me and so I can't allow you into eternity. I'm not coming to preach hard preaching to scare anybody. I'm just defining the word know. To know Jesus is more than just to say, I, he's my Lord. Or he's just on the throne of my life. It's more than just words. It's more than just a, a plaque that I put in my living room. To know God is a relationship. And if the great apostle Paul says in verse 14 that I'm still pressing toward the mark. In the middle of his ministry, having attained such a great ministry, such a powerful ministry, he says, I'm still pressing toward the mark. Then where does that leave me and you? I'm not Paul. Chances are you're not Paul. So if he's still pressing towards the mark, where does that leave me? There still has to be a press in me to know him. To have relationship with him. That when I go home, God's not conformed to the four walls of this church. That my family knows him just as much as this church knows him. That he's in my marriage. He's in my speech. He comes to work with me. He's in the car with me. He's in the secret place where no one's around. My God's still there because I know him. And I'm still pressing to know him more. This is an allusion to 
pressed towards the mark. This is an allusion Paul made to the Grecian, uh, the Roman games that became the Olympics. They, he was talking about a runner running his race. Paul said, I started the race. I was born again. I repented of my sin. I was baptized in Jesus' name. I received the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And so that means I've started running. The race has begun. He said, but the mark that I'm still pressing toward, the calling is relationship, but the prize is eternity. The prize is heaven. And he said, as long as I'm still taking air on this planet, that means I haven't reached the prize. So I'm still running. So it doesn't matter how many gray hairs are on my head, no matter how many scriptures I can quote, no matter how many churches I started, no matter what they call me, no matter what kind of mantle's on my shoulder, I still have to press towards the mark. I still have to hunger for a relationship because I haven't made it yet. The prize is heaven. And being that I'm on this side of Jordan, the only thing that's going to get me to the other side of Jordan, the only thing that gets me to the other side of eternity is the God of Elijah. The only thing that's going to get me to the other side, the only thing that's going to part the waters, the only thing that keeps me in the race is the God of Elijah. And I want to know him. I've got to know him. These men of God, they went back to the first calling, even after the second calling came. Even after David was anointed by Samuel, the oil is dripping off of his head. Samuel turns and goes to Ramah. And David goes back to the shepherd's field. What David didn't do was go to Saul, tug on his coat, and say, hey, dude, Jesus said, I'm the next king. Give me that crown. What David did not do was go take Saul's throne. But what he did do was go right back to the first time he met Jesus. What David did with the oil of anointing poured out of the horn from Samuel saying, you're going to be the next king over Israel. He turned and went back to the sheep where nobody could see him. He went back to the secret place with God where he had met him the first time and he kept walking on that walk with God. He kept being a man after God's own heart. And eventually, the kingdom came. Over time, God made it available that in fact, David was king. In fact, David did take the throne. But that's not what David was after. David just wanted to be back with the sheep that I can go back to have a relationship with him. Because there's something I'm had in that field with God that I'm not going to find on that throne. That throne's not going to give me the power. That throne's not going to give me the anointing. That kingship's not going to get me into heaven. What's going to get me there is that relationship where it's just me and God. I've got to know him and I've got to know him more. To be anointed king over Israel and still hungering for more tells me and you that there's still more of him that's to be had. There's still more that's to be grasped about him. What Elisha did when Elijah came and laid the mantle upon him, he didn't go and get a microphone. He didn't go stand behind a pulpit and say, hey, God said I'm the next prophet of Israel. The Bible says that when the manna was placed upon him, he went and killed the oxen. He went and burned the, 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 the plow so he could never go back to his old ways. He picked up his mantle that the man of God gave him, gave it back to him, and he just began to minister unto the man of God. 
The Bible says that he turned and ministered unto Elijah. That doesn't mean preach, it means serve. What he did was begin to serve the kingdom. I'm going to serve the church. I'm going to serve the body. I'm going to serve the man of God, even though I know that I'm called to be the next prophet over Israel. He never asked God to be the next prophet. Years later, Elisha said, what would you have before I go? He said, I don't want that mantle. I don't want that ministry. I don't want that, that, that uh, the position. What I'm after is a double portion of your spirit. The only two things that Elisha ever requested really were after the same thing. The first thing he asked, a double portion of your spirit. I want to know what it is about you that drew God to you. And then he gets to Jordan and he says, now I want God. So the only thing that Elisha was ever after was the Lord. I just want to know you. And everything else will follow. The scripture says that seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. If all that I'm after is the kingdom of God, everything else will take its place. Everything else will follow. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. Paul again. But covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. Chapter 13, verse 1, is the very next verse. He said, you can pray for the gifts if you want to. You can pray for the ministry if you want to. You can pray for the anointing if you want to. But yet I show you a better way. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels that have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tingling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Paul said you can look for the gifts, the ministry, the anointing, the power. You can do that if you'd like. But if I don't have love... I'm nothing. I can move mountains. I can go to the stake to be burned. I can do all the great things in Pentecost. I can, I can achieve the highest position. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. What's he talking about love? Scripture says that if you love not, you know not God, for God is love. So what he's talking about is not just one fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about the nature of God, who God is. His foundation, God's foundation is holiness, but his nature is love. And so what he's saying is if I've got the gifts and I've got the ministry and I've got the anointing and the position, but yet I don't have his nature, I'm nothing. If I don't know who he is, I'm nothing. If I attain all the greatest of things and I become a prophet and I, I would say to the mountain, be thou removed, and it moves out of its place and everybody thinks I'm spiritual, but yet if I don't know him and I don't have his nature, I'm nothing. I've achieved nothing. I've got nowhere with God. Oh. God, don't let that be me. To have strive for rank and position and prestige and anointing and power and missed his nature. Missed his secret place. Missed his glory. Paul said, this is the better way. Have his nature and all those things will come. 
have relationship with him, and he'll give you all that stuff. You'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. You'll say to the mouth and it'll be removed. But don't put your eyes on that. Just get a relationship with him. Just find him in the secret place. Just develop that place with him and the sheep where it's just you and God. And there ain't no humans that know your name. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody thinks you're spiritual. Nobody knows where you are. Your daddy don't even care about you. Your brothers don't even think you're one of them. Just find a place with him and everything else will follow. David didn't look for vengeance. He didn't look for his brothers to say, I'm sorry. But before he knew it, he was sitting on the throne and his brothers were bowing before him. His dad, he now owned his dad's land. He was now responsible for everything his dad had, even though he was discredited. He was barely even a son. David never cared about any of that. All I want is that God that I met in the field. All I'm interested is that God that met me in the field. Psalms 81, verse 7. People, you know, uh, very uh, after power. We're all about power, especially Pentecost. We've made Acts chapter 1, verse 8 our uh, mantra. But, uh, after that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Uh, and I'm all about the power of the Holy Ghost. God does powerful things. He's got more power than anything else in the universe. I'm all about that. But we've made power um, a replacement for relationship. Things that we, that we seek, we'd rather seek His power. We'd rather be the person that can pray with people at the altar and lay hands on the sick and, and they recover. We'd rather uh, be the prophet. We'd rather be the preacher. We'd... And, and that's all in honesty and goodness because we think that's spirituality. We look at those things and say those people are spiritual because they do this, this, and this. And so we hunger for power, and I think most of it's out of innocency. Um, but, but the truth is the pulpit doesn't give us power. The ministry doesn't supply power. That place on the, on the platform doesn't supply power. That piano doesn't give her power. Uh, the ability to lay hands on the sick and they recover, that doesn't supply someone with power. And so what we're really seeking is spirituality. And really, if we want power, give you an example. You take a 20-foot metal pole. You wait for a Ben Terry on KPLC to say there's going to be a really nice thunderstorm. You go stand out in the middle of a rice field with that 20-foot metal pole, and you're going to feel some power. In fact, if you live, you'll never experience more power in your life. That's power. Psalms 81 and 7. Thou callest me in trouble, and I delivered thee. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. I proved thee at the waters of Meribah. Selah. If you really want power, what you need is not a pulpit. What you need is not a ministry. You don't need uh, some calling, uh, some mantle, uh, some position. That's not going to give you power. If you really want to feel some power... What you need is a secret place. What you need is a place where it's just you and God. And God can learn to trust you. And God can begin to build a relationship with you and begin to cut things off of you and add things to you and reveal who we are. Reveal what we look like when Jesus looks at us. When we start doing that in a secret place, that's when we'll get the power of thunder. 
That's where the power is. That's why people, that's why pastor can stand to the pulpit and there's power. It's not the pulpit giving him power. It's not the, 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 the office that's giving him power. It's that relationship that's giving the man of God power. It's that secret place that David found that put him on the throne. It wasn't the throne that conquered all the enemies of Israel. It wasn't the mantle that split the waters. It was the God of Elijah. It was that man that met David, that God that met David in the secret place when it was just him and the sheep. That's where David got his power. That's where we'll find the anointing. That's where we'll feel the Holy Ghost move. When we find the secret place, we'll come to a public place and the power of God will begin to flow. When we're with God, in the secret place and nobody hears us praying nobody hears us wailing nobody hears us interceding nobody can see us being spiritual when we come to the public place that's where the power will be when we find them in the secret place it's the relationship that breeds the ministry The call to public ministry will not be fulfilled until the call to private relationship is answered. We cannot, according to Scripture, obey God's calling, do what He's asking us to do to the best of His ability. We can do it to the best of our ability. But unless there's relationship, we cannot fulfill everything that God wants us to do. I think that's the heart of every one of us in this place. We've come to church because we want to please God. We want to fulfill. God, what is it that you're calling me to do? If you've got breath in your body today, that means that God is not finished with you. If you had fulfilled God's purpose for your life, you would be six feet under right now. But because we're all here still breathing, that means that there is something that God wants us to do for his kingdom. And every one of us has come to find out what that thing is. And the way that we're going to accomplish that thing, the way that we're going to fulfill the will of God, we are called according to his purpose. The way that we fulfill his purpose is that we find him in the secret place of thunder. And we get to know him in intimacy and we allow him to speak we allow him to pride us we allow that sharp two-edged sword to pierce and divide the soul and spirit the joint and marrow that sharp two-edged sword and it would uh, the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart we would allow the word of God its work in our life we would allow the pulpit to minister unto us we would allow prayer to bring us into intercession we would allow the secret place to bring us into places of his glory that we've never known before when we get to that place in him Paul said that's the high calling that's when we'll begin to fulfill the will of God that takes the pressure off of us that we don't have to beat ourselves and beat our head over the pillow God what is it that you want me to do what am I called to do where do you want me to go what do you want me to say how should I do this because all that we're responsible for is seek first the kingdom if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and seek my face that word face means presence if they would seek my presence then 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 will I heal their land then will I supply their need then will I visit them if they'll humble themselves and seek my presence then all things will be added unto them
Jesus said that I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. What did Jesus lose? Many of us think, that, and our pastors talked about this, and uh, many of us uh, think that that's talking about souls, and, and God's all about souls, but what he lost was worship. In the beginning, he lost Lucifer and the worshiping angels. After that, he created man, and man was created to worship him. And they were in perfection, and they walked in the, in the eve, and in, the, in the cool of the day, they walked hand in hand, him and Adam. Then comes sin. And because God's foundation is holiness, sin could not abide with him anymore. And so Adam was cast out of the garden. Even though his love said, I want relationship with my creation, his holiness says, I can't. Because I cannot dwell with sin. What fellowship hath light with darkness? What fellowship hath Christ with Belial? You cannot have God in the same place as sin, no sin shall inherit the kingdom of God, the scripture says. So, because of sin, man could not dwell with God any longer. God lost his relationship with man. So, Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. I've come to save that relationship with my creation. And so he allowed himself to be hung on a cross for me and you, that the blood of Jesus could cover that sin. And we would allow again to be in his presence. We could be allowed again to walk with him in newness of life. And we can experience with him what Adam had in the beginning. Because of the obedience of the second Adam, Jesus. Because of that blood. This is why holiness is so imperative to our relationship with God. We begin the race with repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and in the infilling of the Holy Ghost. We run the rest of that race in holiness. Now that we've taken care of sin in the water in baptism, now that the blood is covering us, we've been sealed with the Spirit, we've been covered in the blood, we're now in covenant with God. The only thing that remains is the sin that comes after. Because how many of us can testify, since you've come out of the water, you've messed up. Daily I fall short of the glory of God. So there's sin still to be dealt with. I've got to get that blood to cover it. The way that I get rid of that sin or the way that I abstain from that sin is holiness. We don't strive for holiness so that we can look spiritual or feel spiritual or say that we're spiritual. The only reason that we want holiness is because we want relationship. And the only way that we can have relationship is if that sin is dealt with and we continue to walk towards Him. And repentance means to turn in a 180 degrees. That means that my sinful life is this way and God is this way. That means I am repentant. So now that I have repented or I am repentant, I am now walking towards God. What does that mean? That means holiness. Separation. I am separating myself from the old man unto Him. I'm separating myself from the old nature unto Him. And so everything that I'm living for now is His kingdom, His desire, His pleasure, His glory to know Him, to have relationship with Him. And so because of that, my heart says that I'm willing to give up anything. I'm willing to do anything if it just means that I can be with you again. That is the work of holiness. That's the reason that we separate ourselves from this world and from the old life is because we want to know Him. It's all about His kingdom. 
The only way I can get into his kingdom is through holiness. Brother Hughes covered it so well last week. When we were born again, Satan come off of our throne. He was forced off of our throne. So now we have two that remain, our flesh and God. Our flesh's nature says, I want to rule. I want to do what pleases me. I want to be comfortable. I want to have it my way. That's the flesh. The flesh was never designed, or the throne of our heart was never designed for the flesh. That's what the altar's for. The throne was designed for God himself. So what is holiness? Holiness is I'm putting my flesh on the altar, and I'm allowing God to sit on the throne. That no matter how bad it hurts, no matter what he asks of me, no matter where he wants me to go, what he wants me to say or not say, do or not do, uh, whatever it is that pleases God, that's what I want to do because I need him on my throne. I need to know him so that I can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The greatest calling that we'll ever receive is Abba, Father. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The best words that we're ever going to hear is not you've been called to preach. It's not you've been called to evangelize. The, the greatest thing that we could ever hear from Jesus is not I've called you to be a great man of God. I've called you to do great things for my kingdom. That's not the sweetest words that will ever come out of Jesus' mouth. The greatest thing I ever want to hear from God is well done, thou good and faithful servant. So my whole life's goal is to hear those words. I want relationship with him no matter what it costs me, no matter where I have to go, no matter what I've got to do, no matter what I've got to give up, no matter what I've got to pick up, no matter where I've got to go in prayer. If it means that I can know him, if it means that I'll be closer to him, if it means that I can hear those words, I'm willing. I want to know it. That's the highest calling that we could ever hear. I'm closing. Musicians, you can come. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. Am I making sense today? Amen. Now the end of the commandments is charity. I'm sorry, I told you first Timothy. That is my fault. Second Timothy, please. Second Timothy chapter one, verse When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Paul is writing to Timothy who is the pastor of Ephesus, which is a church of 10,000 people. Ephesus at this time was suffering from what every church from then on or before then and on was suffering from 
it was people that were coming to God, bringing the world with them. There were, there were ideas of the world that were coming against the church. There was paganism, idolatry, uh, Greek philosophy that was coming against the church. And Timothy is, 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 is being overran. He's slipping. He's falling. And Paul is writing unto them. And he says in verse uh, number eight, uh, six, he says, remember the gift that was given unto thee. Of God, He's not talking about the gift of the Spirit. That's, that gift is singular. He's talking about remember the relationship that you had with God in the beginning. Verse 5 said that remember that unfeigned faith which was in your grandmother and your mother that I am persuaded is in you also. That spirit about you, Timothy. Remember that. I want you have to fall back on that gift that God first gave you, which was his relationship with you. You have to fall back on that time when it was just you and God. And you felt the glory of God come into that room. And you were looking at situations. You were looking at your, your, the way you were brought up, your past, your mistakes. But God reassured you right then that you were called, you were chosen for his purpose. Remember that time when you felt you weren't worth it or felt, felt that you weren't capable, not qualified, and God reassured you in that secret place when it was just you and Him, you're going to have to remember that time because if not, you'll fail. You're going to slip. But God did not give us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. Had Timothy fallen ten thousand souls would have gone with him it was so vital that Timothy had a foundation to stand on a foundation of relationship that had he not had something to fall back on that old gift that unfeigned faith that relationship that he had developed with God in the beginning had it not been there he would have missed it had David not had something to remember about in that field when it was just me and God and I saw the heart of God and I found the heart of God and I learned what pleased him and I learned how strong he was when I defeated the bear and I learned how powerful he was when the lion fell and I didn't even have a sword when I learned in the field I've got to have that understanding today in the kingdom or the kingdom's going to fail why don't you stand with me? Had Timothy not had something to hold on to, 10,000 people would have paid for it with him. This end time is going to heat up fast, faster than what it already is. It's going to get hot. It's going to get a little difficult. But God will always have a church. What I know is that us that are on the fringes and we're not sure whether or not this thing's real, we're not sure whether or not we want to live for God or whether or not it's really worth giving all that up. And can I tell you, can I interject there and say that holiness is not just about giving up things because the reward is so much greater 
than the price that it pays. And I'm not even talking about the reward of heaven. That's ultimate. That's the ultimate reward. But the, the reward that I get when I can walk and know that I'm pleasing God, there's nothing like that. To have that voice of conviction come off of my shoulders is the best feeling that we can feel on this planet. To feel that press of the Spirit saying, come unto me. Come unto me. Come closer. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. And the flesh is resisting. When I finally put that flesh on the altar and I finally give up my own desires and my own will and I wholeheartedly obey the voice of God and I come unto Him and His glory meets me there, there is nothing more beautiful than that. There is nothing that God could ever request of us that would be greater than the benefit of pleasing Him. So those of us in this end time that we're not sure whether or not it's worth it all, can I tell you it is worth it. It's so worth it. But if we don't make up our mind today, Timothy, the end time's going to get so hot we're not going to make it. If we don't have a foundation of relationship, Timothy, the end time's going to get so trying the persecution will get only greater. If we don't have the Lord, if we don't have the relationship in the secret place, we're not going to make it. But we can make it. No matter how strong we are, how weak we are, how much scripture we can quote, whether or not we've got a place on the platform, whether or not we've got a position in the church, we can make it no matter the end time, no matter the persecution, just as long as we've got a secret place, just as long as we're responding to the first call of God, as long as we're seeking that relationship with Him, He will supply that strength. He's going to take care of that bear. He's going to take care of that lion. All He's after is a secret place with Him. I'd invite you today as we come together into the front, to the altar, to lay our flesh down, not in condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that walk after the Spirit. Condemnation is not of God. Conviction is of God, and that brings hope. And the hope for me and you today is if I do everything in my power to please God and to walk with God and to know God, everything else will follow suit. Everything else will fall in place. All that I need to do today is lift my hands, lift my heart, and just seek Him. Just hunger for Him. Just desire His glory. That's the opportunity we have today in this place.